Good morning, Axis. I'm Josh, the youth director, and I'm so happy to be with you guys today. Uh, you know, one of the best parts of recording a message uh, at home is that I could be wearing my PJ bottoms right now and no one would know. So I'll let you guys, I guess, guess in the chat or something. <laughs> um, so I'm excited that I get to explore this, this text with you today as part of our series, Failing Forward. So we've been looking at the failures of these heroes of the Bible and trying to figure out what went wrong. What can we learn from them? I do want to offer a disclaimer uh, before we move forward. So some of the topics in this story are sensitive ones, um, but I think that it is important that we touch on them. I want to be mindful of this, and I know that many of you may have your children around, so I'll do my best to not be too explicit about some of these things. Uh, I'll be putting up on the screen some of these topics that we'll touch on. So growing up in the church, when I heard the story of David and Bathsheba, it was almost always in the context of purity culture. I uh, heard it in talks about lust, about David's idleness, about bouncing your eyes away from a pretty girl. Uh, it would be reasonable to think then by, by association that the author of the book of Samuel had intended the story to warn Israel about the dangers of lust and temptation. But it's not really about that at all. So let's start with the context, with where this story takes place in the greater narrative of the Bible. Uh, the youth, you guys know that this is something we do a lot whenever we look at a new story. So let's take a look at this. Uh, we're going to jump firstly to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, um, the author describes a stunning display of power that would define the Jewish identity for centuries. God frees the Hebrew people uh, and brings them out of Egypt. Uh, they receive the Mosaic Law on Sinai. Then we jump forward to the book of Joshua, where Israel conquers the Promised Land, mostly, uh, and they begin to live there. During this time, God is raising up judges to lead the Israelites, but these judges get progressively worse and worse. And instead of leading Israel to holiness, they start wielding their authority to lead them into idolatry. This pattern culminates in the story of Samson. Uh, he's the worst of the judges, and he's basically kind of a villain in his own right. After this, Israel deteriorates, deteriorates into civil war, which is why it's understandable why Israel, the people of Israel, ask for a king. They want a king like the other nations. So they want someone to wield power and authority over them, someone that can bring peace, law, and order to a chaotic land. It's a land where every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and they want someone to bring law and order. Unfortunately for them, what they'll receive is, in fact, a king or kings just like all the other nations have. So we see the first king, Saul, doesn't do too great of a job. Um, his big failure is that he tries to consolidate power. He oversteps his bounds as kings by offering a sacrifice that only priests could give. But next comes David. So Paul, so Saul was picked by human standards. 
You know, he's tall, dark, and handsome. Cool drink of water, cool glass of water, whatever people say. Um, he's a great orator. You know, he just he just looks like a great leader. Uh, but David's David's different. Um, see, David is chosen according to God's heart, so according to God's standards. So unlike Saul, David is humble and trusting. He displays great faith and great compassion. Um, the books of First and Second Samuel record tale after tale after tale of David's extraordinary character. It's far too many stories for us to recount here. Um, so in fact, just a few chapters before, before our story, uh, the author records the story of David's hospitality to Mephibosheth who's King Saul's grandson. Mephibosheth is perhaps the only person alive who could be a viable threat to David's kingdom, you know, since he's a descendant of the previous king. Uh, most kings would kill such a threat to the throne, and many kings and would-be kings after David uh, do this, in fact. But David's different. He has compassion for him, compassion for Saul and Jonathan, and he welcomes Mephibosheth into his family like a son. <clears throat> and so we are coming to our story now. Uh, we often say the story is about David and Bathsheba, but if we read it carefully, we see that Bathsheba is really more of a background character. Uh, she has takes has one action in the entire story. She is named twice, once by David and once by the narrator. This story is really about David about his offenses against God, Uriah, and Bathsheba. It's about his failure, one that in the book of Samuel acts as a turning point where David's uphill climb stops and his tragedy begins. So let's take a look at this story. Reading from 2 Samuel. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. All right, so let's set the scene. David, while his army is away at war, he's taking an evening stroll on the roof of his palace. He looks down and he sees a woman who he identifies. He knows her. He knows her family. Importantly, Uriah is listed elsewhere as one of David's mighty men, his top warriors, many of whom have been with David since his days running from Saul in the wilderness. Tragically, we all can also tell that Uriah is close to David. Um, this, this relational closeness is reflected in how close his house is to the royal palace. It's with an eye shot. So let's talk about Bathsheba. Uh, when I was younger, I was taught, uh, and you've probably heard in you know, the songs that uh, that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof, roof of her house is an act that was tempting for David. Notice how in this retelling, uh, the onus of temptation shifts away from David and towards the woman. 
But let's notice. The text only says that David was on the roof. In addition, the text also gives us information about why Bathsheba was bathing. It says she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. So in our last unit with the youth, uh, we talked about the purity laws in the Old Testament. And this is one of them. It's a ritualistic religious washing having to do with her menstrual period. Now remember, this is before running water. So these bathing and washing pools would have been outside, covered by walls to some extent to maintain privacy. So the reason David's even able to see Bathsheba is that he is on the roof of the palace, peering down at the houses beneath him. He sees her as she is purifying herself so she can be part of the social and religious life of the nation. So what she's doing is actually she is being a God-following Israelite in this case. So let's jump back into the story. Uh, David sees Bathsheba and he summons her to the palace. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happens here. But in the age of Me Too and Church Too, it's perhaps not that hard to imagine. Perhaps the messengers come down to Bathsheba. Uh, the king needs to see you, they tell her. Uh, her mind maybe flashes with worry. What message could be so important that King David, you know, the king that God has appointed, has to tell her face to face? Is it her husband? Some news from the front line? Uh, maybe panic and fear grips her heart, so she leaves to meet with King David as the sun begins to set. I don't know how long it takes for her to realize that it's not about her husband. Uh, she's in the presence of the most powerful man in the country, and he's trying to seduce her. He has multiple wives already, much like the kings of all the other nations, but he wants her. What, what can she do? Can she say no to the man who commands armies and holds in his hands the fate of nations? And what would happen to her if she did? And what would happen to her husband? So while the Bible doesn't record exactly how this goes, um, the author also doesn't afford any agency to Bathsheba in the story. Like I said before, she gets exactly one action in the entire passage, and that's sending a messenger to David, telling him that she is pregnant. So using the language of today, it's pretty, pretty easy to classify David's actions and intentions as at least sexual assault, if not worse. So what does David do when he finds out that his actions actually have consequences? And these are consequences that threaten his rule. It's a scandal. It's a possible error. What happens is that David initiates a government cover-up. So under the guise of receiving news from the front, he has Uriah brought back to Jerusalem. Because if Uriah never goes home, then obviously if Bathsheba was pregnant, it's not, it's not his kid. So David tries to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. There's some irony here. See, so unlike David, Uriah is honorable. So he's made a pact of solidarity and discipline, uh, perhaps with his fellow soldiers. So he refrains from heading home to his wife. And David tries to convince him, says, you should go home. Uh, you have such a good soldier. You deserve it. But it doesn't work. Uriah is too honorable. And David gets, so David tries to get Uriah drunk. But ironically, even drunk Uriah is more honorable than David. So David, David goes to plan B. David tells his commander, Joab, 
to get Uriah killed. So Joab places Uriah in the path of danger, uh, where the best enemy soldiers are, where, where, the, where the Israelite forces would be tactically at a disadvantage. Uh, we see this when Joab sends a message back to David. So Joab commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize that they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hethite is dead also. Then the messenger left. So Joab anticipates David's anger, uh, his anger at the bad, like not political, but tactical error that kills off some of his soldiers. But he mollifies him by telling him that Uriah is dead. The secret is safe. His kingdom is safe. David marries Bathsheba after she mourns her husband. And this would have been the end of the story, except for Nathan, a prophet. Nathan meets with David, and he begins to tell him a story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for, for one small ewe lamb that he had brought, bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but a rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan confronts David that he, that David, is the offender. So what he has done to Uriah and Bathsheba is worse than what the man in the story has done. David is confronted by his sin. He repents. The story of David, Uriah, and Bathsheba isn't primarily about lust. It's about the abuse of power. Unfortunately, the abuse of power is nothing surprising. Uh, we see this in our movies, our stories, our politics, I mean, I don't even need to name any specific instance here. I'm sure that you can think of a story where someone has abused or is abusing their power. And unfortunately, the abuse of spiritual power, spiritual abuse, is nothing new either. Now, let's name a few examples just to bring this home. Uh, for example, recently churches and Christian organizations around America have had to reckon with the harm we have allowed or that we have perpetrated towards women and children. In addition, in the past few years, we've seen far too many churches use the name of Jesus to prop up a political agenda agenda or candidate. 
And more recently, many in the evangelical world have been shocked and dismayed by revelations of spiritual and sexual abuse perpetrated by prominent apologist Ravi Zacharias. I think what disturbs me the most about David's story is that he doesn't recognize the harm he's caused, the sin that he's committed. So Nathan is telling him the story, one a story that we might expect to trouble David's conscience, at least a little, but he reacts as if he's done nothing wrong. I, I really think that this should trouble us. We often think that if we do something wrong, we'd realize it. If I hurt someone, I would, I would recognize it. I'd feel bad about this. Our consciences should trouble us, we think, when we hurt other people, when we abuse our power and privilege. But if David somehow didn't realize it when he assaulted Bathsheba and murdered her husband to cover up his wrongdoings, then maybe we too could be subject to the same blindness. So here's the question I want to look at. Why was David so blind to his own sin? And how can we make sure that this doesn't happen to us? I think the first thing we have to recognize about ourselves as human beings is that we have a propensity to rationalize our actions. Though the text doesn't specifically mention David's rationalizations, it's not hard to see how he could try to justify his actions. You know, maybe he thinks, you know, I I work so hard for God's kingdom. I, I just need... I need to relax. I provide so much for these people. The least they could do is give back. Or if the scandal gets out, this will ruin God's kingdom. And I can't let that happen. See, my rule is preserving the welfare of thousands of people. Uriah is a good, loyal soldier. He would understand. I, I don't like this, but the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. This is probably a good first stop as we self-examine. Am I rationalizing something that I know is wrong? Am I doing something that could hurt other people for a good cause? I think, though, that David's blindness stems from somewhere more insidious. When we think back at it, when David was running from Saul, he had so many chances to kill Saul, but David refused to. When Saul's grandson Mephibosheth is discovered, and he's a possible threat to David's lineage, David welcomes him into his family. But when David gets Bathsheba pregnant, his response isn't empathy, compassion, or trust in God's plan. It's murder. What changed for David? power. So Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God, puts it this way. It is a strange fact that power, which so often is prominently displayed, whether with private offices and reserved parking spaces, turreted castles and tanks, or entourages and tour buses, very often also blinds us to features of the world that are blindingly obvious to others. The powerful have a hard time seeing their own power and its effects. We do not see when our exercise of power is cutting off life and possibility for others. 
Which, side note, I'm going to use uh, a lot of Crouch's terminology in this message. I think it's pretty helpful. Power, simply put, is the ability to change the world around us. And David, as king, had gained a lot of power. And that power blinded him to many things, and it warped his once soft heart. It blinded him to the harm he caused to Uriah and Bathsheba. It blinded him to the harm he caused to his soldiers as he sent many of them into a tactically indefensible position. It blinded him to the way that he was abusing God's power and his God-appointed position for his own benefit, that he was justifying murder and sexual assault in the name of God. It's such a change for David. See, power can be dangerous when we do not examine our own power. Let me tell you a story, an analogy that might help us understand this. So I remember an incident when I was growing up in California. My brother and I, uh, we were both teenagers and we were horse playing in the hallway during our parents' small group, as one does. Uh, so um, I was being the tickle monster. Uh, many of you probably know the game or can infer what this game is. Um, and my brother and I were both ticklish, but, but I'm, I was better at it or at tickling. Um, so I trapped him in the hallway, tickled him until he was on the ground, and I just kept at it. Um, just kept tickling him, and there was this loud crash. <laughs> so I just stopped, um, and I'm looking around, trying to figure out what just happened. Uh, and I see what's happened. Uh, I see my brother's ankle, it's sticking out of the wall. Um, and so in my tickling and his flailing and kicking, his foot, his leg had just gone right through this wall. <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, all the adults thought it was really funny. Uh, and you might recognize this phrase that they used. Um, that he didn't know his own strength. But I didn't think it was very funny. Um, I was ashamed. Sure, maybe my brother didn't know his own strength. But what had really occurred was that I didn't know my own strength. I didn't realize that playing this game could lead to a foot thrust through a wall. I didn't know my own power in that situation. See, when we don't recognize our own power, when we have not mapped out and understood the depth and complexities of our own power, we cannot use it responsibly. But Josh, you might say, um, I don't have that much power. I'm no king. I'm no political leader. I'm not a church leader. How does any of this apply to me? And that's a good question. Um, and to be sure, leaders have a special calling and a special responsibility to use their power well. But we all have power to some extent. Remember, power is our ability to change the world around us. One of the key ways we have power is in our relationships. Are you a parent? You have power over your children. Are you in a relationship? You have power over your partner. Are you a supervisor or manager? You have power over those below you. But also, do you have siblings? You have some power over them. Do you have parents? You also have power over them, as power can often go both ways. Do you have followers on Instagram? You have power over them. Do your peers look up to you or ask you 
for advice, that's power. See, when we have influence, we have power. And often our power becomes dangerous to other people when we choose to deny that we have power or when we are blind to the power that we have. One of the ways this can often show up is something we call privilege. Um, so when COVID-19 was breaking out in the U.S., I had some well-meaning friends who didn't understand why it was harmful to call COVID-19 the, the China virus or the Chinese virus. And still, even now, I have to contain my anger when thinking about this or when explaining to them that this is harmful because someone can so easily point at me and say, look, the Chinese virus. See, my friend's racial privilege blinded them to the power that they held, a power to use language that could, without their consent or their intent, hurt people who look like me. But privilege is more than just racial. Um, let's take a look at Crouch's definition of privilege. Privilege is a special kind of power. It is a form of power that requires no effort. Indeed, only in unusual circumstances do we become conscious of it at all. Most of the time, privilege just works on behalf of those who have it, never making the slightest demands of them. Privilege is the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. Privilege is a name for all the good things we do that we do not need to try to acquire because they simply flow to us as a result of past exercises of power. And so because we do not have to act in order to gain or benefit from this power, privilege is far too often unmapped. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to map our power. And how can we do that? Well, one way we can do this is by taking the time to examine our power. Um, a helpful tool for you may be the power audit uh, produced by Mandy Marshall. I'll put a URL somewhere on the screen here. Um, and I'm sure there are many other tools that might be helpful here as we examine our own power. But I do want to bring to our attention one last thing or one important thing that we can learn from David's story. And that's this. To prevent abuses of power, we need a community of people who will speak prophetically into our lives. We see this in David's story. Uh, there are so many people who could theoretically speak up. Uh, the servants see Bathsheba going in and out of the palace. The messengers know at least a portion of what's happening. Joab receives orders from the king to kill Uriah, and all of them just follow along. Now, to be fair, many of these people may not be in a position where they can safely speak up. David, as has been shown in the story, isn't afraid to kill someone who gets in the way of his kingdom. But perhaps that's part of the problem. David has placed himself in a situation where no one reasonably can or will push back against his actions. Except Nathan. God's prophet steps into the situation, braving David's wrath, to bring clarity and judgment upon David and his deeds. 
Who have you implicitly or explicitly given the permission to speak prophetically into your life and actions? When I say prophetically here, we can think back to our message about the roles in the church, the prophetic role, speaking on God's behalf to both encourage believers and speak out against evil and evil deeds. Frankly, if there aren't people who will call you out, then that should be a warning sign. Perhaps more importantly, if no one has called you out on wrongdoing recently, that could be a very dangerous sign. Because maybe you think, maybe I think people will call me out on things, but I'm actually in a situation where people can't or won't do that. And maybe, maybe I'm blind to that. Consider, when people call you out, how do you respond? Or how will you respond? Will you react defensively with anger and violence? Or will you carefully and prayerfully consider the rebuke? Perhaps this is God speaking into your life. And then perhaps a second related question. Whose lives do you speak into? Perhaps like Jonah, and you know, sometimes like me, uh, God wants you to call people to repentance, but you don't think that they can or should be saved. Or perhaps like me, you're conflict avoidant, and you know that speaking prophetically will create conflict. But the thing is, there are people who trust me to speak into their lives. And the question that I have to ask myself is, are there places where I need to speak prophetically where I'm refusing to because it's uncomfortable or maybe dangerous? I think all this should give us a lot to think about. And I really wish, I wish we could look at David and see how he makes it all right. But he, he doesn't. His failure here affects his whole lineage as his children learn from him and repeat his sins. But I think we have hope. Hope for David and hope for us as we wield power. Because centuries later, a new David, a better David, takes the throne. And he wields power, not for his own gain, but for the gain of those that he loves. When his kingdom and life is threatened, he doesn't use power to strike down his enemies. He relinquishes his power, allowing himself to be struck down. This new David allows evil and evil people to take him and nail him to a cross. But in that death, he redeems all the evil that has come before and will ever come after. In that act, the new David, himself the descendant of Bathsheba, takes the evil David did and uses it for good. Not by using his power to destroy his enemies, but by giving it up to redeem them. Maybe there's a point to be made here, something God wants us to know, but how he wants us to use our power. But I am running out of time, so I will leave that for you to contemplate and mull over. <laughs> I'll put up some reflection questions, and then we'll say our sending prayer together.
Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity in Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen.